0: Welcome back to the Chin-Up Podcast. This week, we welcome Sam Cho. He's a graduate of American University and the London School of Economics and previously served as a political appointee during the Obama administration. Currently, he serves as the CEO of Seven Seas Export, which he also founded, as well as holding a position on the Seattle Port Commission. This interview was conducted by Leah Long, a board fellow of the Robert Chin Foundation.
1: Hi, good afternoon. This is Leah.
0: Leah,
1: how are you? I'm good. 안녕하세요
0: Oh! 안녕하세요 I didn't realize you're Korean.
1: Yeah, I am Korean, actually. We're very, very excited to have you today. You have a, such an impressive career in both politics and business. Let's just start with your family. And you growing up as a Korean-American with your immigrant parents in Seattle, um, what was it like?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in uh, Seattle, Washington, which is already a pretty diverse area. I think what advantage I had was that there's a pretty large Korean population here. And so I was able to kind of keep in touch and connection with my Korean heritage and roots. I went to Korean school on every Saturday, as you may have experienced as well. I also, my parents are very devout Christians. And so I grew up in the Korean church. And, and, and so I had a very strong group of friends who were Korean. And so, you know, I think I was very blessed in that sense, that I had a sense of community. But I grew up in a very white suburb of Kirkland. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting for me to kind of have that juxtaposition of living in an area that's very, very not diverse while at the same time embracing my heritage. So I think I came out all right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's interesting. You have a very interesting, also, I think, uh, your college experience. You went to D.C., Uh, for your undergrad. And then you turned to go London to get your master's from London School of Economics. So I'm just curious, what were the some of the turning points for that and what inspired to make those decisions?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So um, I was actually, uh, originally when I went into college, I was a pre-med student. I was a biological anthropology major. And I did that for two years thinking that I wanted to go into medicine. And then I realized that I wasn't really that good. At the life sciences. And then what happened was I took an elective on um, global politics, I think it was, or global affairs. And it just completely opened my eyes to right. the world, really, just like what's going on. At the time, this was 2009, or I think, or 10, there was the Arab Spring, and Egypt was going through a revolution. And there was just a lot going on on the world stage. And I feel like I, I realized hmm, like, a lot of what I'm learning now is happening in the world right now, mm-hmm. uh, whereas in my in, in like chemistry and biology, it's really hard to see all that stuff in the real, real world, world. So I felt this attraction towards international relations and foreign affairs. And so that's why I went to American. Uh, I actually transferred into American my junior year. So I spent two years in a local university here in, in Washington, and then I transferred to American my junior year, finished out uh, my time there. I was recruited on campus to work for the State Department. I was an analyst for the State Department. Mm -hmm. um, And I actually hated that job. I mean, I think it was a good, you know, like foot in the door, you know, everyone and anyone who studies foreign policy or US foreign policy wants to work at the State Department. And I was very fortunate to be there, but the, the work that I was doing, I was in the FOIA office and I was processing Freedom of Information Act requests. And it was just a very boring, laborious job. And I realized that if I wanted to get into the real foreign policy world, I needed to go get a master's degree. So I chose to go to the London School of Economics. It was the only grad school I applied to. I was pretty set on it. Uh, fortunately, I got in somehow and, and it was the best year of my life. I, I, you know, I met some of my best friends till this day in London. You know It was a lot cheaper, right? It was like 18,000 pounds, which is like $25,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's really cheap. And it's a one-year master of science. I studied political economy. I met. I had made friends from all over Europe and all over the world, and uh, it was just, it was just such a great experience. Um, makes, and so I sense. think it's a very economical and efficient route if anyone is trying to just get um, a, a grad degree and check off that box. You know, LSE, Oxford, or Cambridge have also one-year programs. If you look closely, um, it's a really good option for most a lot of people.
1: And you already had that mindset of the global and international yeah. policy there.
0: so Yeah, yeah, I always had, I think I kind of caught the bug, as you call it. And so when I graduated from LSC, LSC is kind of known to be a feeder school for finance. A lot of like investment banking and consulting uh, firms who recruit on campus. And for a little while, I was in the middle of that rat race. I applied to banks like Barclays and HSBC and Goldman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately like DC kind of called my name. And so I ended up going back uh, to D.C. and I worked for a member of Congress uh, as, uh, doing foreign affairs, defense, and trade work,
1: work. Right. And then right after you work with uh, at the D.C., you also start to your own business, 7C Export, yeah. right? So yeah. what really inspired you and what's the story behind um, you heads up for this 7C Export as a CEO?
0: After I worked for the member of Congress, I worked for President Obama. I was a political appointee. And so what happened was when you're a political appointee, When that president leaves, you leave as well. Mm -hmm. You You don't get to stay unless the next president asks you to stay and appoints you back to the administration. You're pretty much done when the president's done. So when President Barack Obama left, I was out of the job. And you can imagine like when Donald Trump took the White House, no one wanted to hire an Obama person. Like it was very tough for an Obama person to get a job in politics or policy. When the White House was Republican, when the 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 both chambers of Congress were Republican, and so I, I had a really hard time looking for a job. Uh, at the time, there was this really big outbreak of avian influenza, or AI bird flu. Yep. In Asia, it started in China, kind of went through Korea, uh, and in other parts of Asia, Korea was per, hit pretty hard. They had to kill millions of chickens to to contain the ai outbreak the bird flu outbreak i saw that in the news and and i saw also that they were lowering tariffs and subsidizing freight costs and so you know i worked on trade policy for a long time in fact my dissertation at the london school of economics was on south korean J- japanese trade policy so i had i had known a little bit you know about trade policy to know that this might be an arbitrage opportunity so i literally just called a farm uh, a chicken farm or an egg farm and asked them, like, would you do this business with me whatever? At first they were like, who the hell are you? And they they weren't really open to the idea because a lot of farmers are pretty conservative and they don't want to take risks. And, and so I had to fly out there and talk to them and convince them to partner with me. And I think for me, part of why I did it was, you know, I, first of all, I had a hard time finding a job. So I had nothing to lose really from a, like a jobs perspective, but also like I was 27 at the time. And I was pretty, I mean, it's pretty young, I say, I would say. And I thought to myself, if there's ever a time for me to take a risk and be an entrepreneur and start a business and fail, it's now, right? And so I kind of took that and, and ran with it. And I said, look, I'm going to try this. might be the worst idea ever. might be horrible. Uh, but, you know, I'll recover, right? I have like 30 plus years of my career left. So even if I fail, I'll learn a lot and I'll recover. Uh, turned out it was a horrible idea. Uh, exporting eggs is not easy for obvious reasons. Eggs are fragile. They have a short shelf life. Yeah. So you can't put them on a boat. And so like my first shipment of eggs was a disaster actually. And it turned out to be a really, really bad idea. But instead of like giving up, I thought about how we can make it work better. And so instead of, you know, What most people were trying to do was ship raw eggs. What I decided to do is instead of selling eggs to supermarkets and grocery stores for people like you and me to buy, I sold eggs to bakeries and confectionaries and uh, and restaurants that use the egg as an ingredient in their end product, like bread and cookies and stuff like that, right? And the reason I did that was because you don't need the shell.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So they crack the eggs to make bread anyway, right? They crack eggs for baking. So my idea was to, why do I need to ship the eggs in the shell? Let's just ship them. Let's pre-crack them. Let's package them and ship them that way. That way you don't need to worry about cracking eggs and you know the mess. And then to take it a step further, uh, we froze the eggs. So we put them in these freezers for about three or four days and they come out rock solid as a, and then we put them in a refrigerated container and what that does is it preserves the eggs for a longer period of time. Obviously, that's what, that's why we put anything in the fridge. Uh, so now I can put them on shipping containers and ship them through ocean, not airplane. So I've dramatically reduced the cost of shipping eggs because now I can put them on a boat and not a plane, which is far more cheaper. And I don't need to worry about them being cracked or breaking because they're already cracked and it was a pretty big success you know i i ended up exporting over two and a half million pounds of eggs in the span of two years and
1: wow, wow. yeah so it was a pretty big hit and now it's very common
0: but uh back then to export frozen eggs was not kind of obvious
1: yeah, i do remember that time like uh, on the news it's always talking about how much the egg cost is in korea yeah, it was really in expensive Asia. yeah it was like
0: $10, almost ten dollars a carton. yeah
1: that's very interesting. That, that is really interesting. And I like how you kind of come back thinking outside of the box. So let's people a little bit to your uh, political career. So <laughs> you're the first Korean American and youngest port commissioner in the history of the Port of Seattle. I actually have to ask you this question. So what was your job like during the global pandemic?
0: <laughs> so I had about two months of normal port and then everything went remote. If you remember, the first case of COVID in the United States was in Seattle. Right. Uh, and, the, and, and, and the guy actually came to the port of Seattle. <laughs> he came to the SeaTac International Airport. So I got sworn in on January 7th. And I think the first case was January 28th or 20th or something like that. So I had like three, three weeks of like normal, normal port duties. You know, it's been really challenging. Travel has obviously died a lot because of COVID. No one's really traveling right now. And then if you remember, COVID hit China back in like, winter of last year. So it was kind of like September, October, November, December when China was dealing with COVID and then it came to the US, right? And so China did a lockdown back then, back in like December, November. And that hurt us because the port of Seattle is the closest port to Asia basically. And most of our exports go to Asia. So when Asia was hit by COVID, it hurt us a lot because they were not importing. And so we saw the effects of COVID back in like November, December. And then we shut down in like March, mm-hmm. right? We did a whole statewide shutdown. And so it was kind of like this prolonged pain. And so a lot of this year has been kind of figuring out how we're going to survive in the era of COVID and figure out where our priorities are, where we, we have huge budget shortfalls, just like everyone else, because no one's flying and we don't have as much revenue so it's been a lot of planning, uh, it's been a very educational for me and, and, and uh, it's a blessing in disguise because I've had to learn at a hundred times the pace that everyone, like all my other colleagues are not new to the port, I was the only new, new person. And so they've had all the background, they have a history, I don't, I was brand new. So I had to learn everything really quickly. And then I feel like, you know, as the only person of color on the port commission, I, I, I try and be the voice when it comes to making sure that our policies are, uh, are, are done with the equity lens. And so I've been very active in the past several months on making sure that we are being equitable and racially conscious of our policy decisions uh, and, and really making sure that we're caring to those who are disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, especially with the heightened Black Lives Matter movement and some of the stuff going on across the country when it comes to racial justice. So it's been a crazy year.
1: Would you ever consider running for another elected office, even such as like a governor or, you know, we just made a history in this country. Uh, We now have a first ever um, biracial vice president elect in the White House. So even how about the first Asian-American president? Like, Are you considering any of those um, more another elected office in the future?
0: Well, I mean, I hope that in my lifetime, we see an Asian American president. That would be amazing. And I think it's possible. I think Kamala Harris is the first AAPI vice president. So if she decides to move, go for the presidency, I think we're a lot closer to that than we think. You know, I've been asked this question a lot. When I ran for office, when I ran for Port Commission, I was kind of a black horse candidate. No one really under, like knew who I was. You know, I was kind of a I came out of nowhere. I ran for the port, even though if you look at my credentials and my experience, like people would think, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like he would run for the port. He's an exporter. He did trade. Mm-hmm. You know, he worked in Congress. He did work for Obama. Like he seems qualified. And I was, I, but I think a lot of people were surprised when I ran. And that's because I never really thought that I would run so soon. It was always something that I would have considered, but you know, I, 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 I was 29, you know, I'm, I'm 30 now, but between now and governor, now and president, there's so much in between. But I will say this, that you know, you never say never, and I would be honored to serve in whatever capacity if the opportunity presents itself. You know, And that's a very political answer, but if the opportunity presents itself, I would always contemplate it. But I also have always said that like, I'll only run for another office if I think I'm the best person for the job, and if I really wanna do the job. I am not someone who will chase after titles or positions or roles. I, if you had asked me many years ago, if I were for the port commission, you know, not a lot of people care about the port commission. It's not a sexy position. It's not out there. It's a very, very important position, but it's not, it's not what a lot of people think about. And, you know, most people start their careers as school board or a city council. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the port is a very, and it's a very, you know, here in, in Washington, the port, is a countywide elected position. It's not city. It's a very big race. It's a countywide race. You know, most members of Congress don't get as many votes as I did. I, I got over three hundred thousand votes, and right. and most congressional races are not even that. But my point being that, like, I never expected to run for the port at the age of twenty nine. And who knows what will happen in the next few years? As you know, there's a census, and Census 2020 is going to redraw lines and change things. And so I think there's going to be a lot of movement uh, in the next several years. And if there's an opportunity and, you know, and if people support me, um, I'll, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll consider running again uh, for something else. But it all depends on, you know, what opportunities present themselves.
1: Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, your career is just such an inspire for everyone, um, especially those Asian Americans looking into that High of a career path in the future. Um, so you have a huge followings and people who look up you. So if you have any last words for everyone in the new year coming up in 2021 and beyond, what would you like to say to them?
0: You know, I think going into 2021, first, I would say, you know, stay healthy and safe. Obviously, COVID cases are going up. And until we have a new presidential administration, it doesn't seem like there's going to be much done on COVID at least from this president, the current president. So I just encourage everyone to rethink Thanksgiving, Christmas gatherings, maybe do things remotely, minimize travel and stuff. But, you know, on a broader level, I think that the Asian-American community is on the verge of breaking out. And some would argue that we've already broken out, right? We have Kamala Harris, who's the VP now. We have a record number of members of Congress who are AAPI. We have a pipeline of AAPI electives all across the country and in, 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 in places where you wouldn't even think we have, like places like in Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, where my where my friend Sam is a state rep, and you know, a lot of people in places in like New Jersey and in Virginia and uh, places where we have a modest Korean population and AAPI population. And so, you know, I would just say stay engaged. And one, one of the things that one of my friends and mentors, Marilyn Strickland, who just won. I seen in Congress. Uh, She was the first Asian American, Korean American and Black woman from the state of Washington to represent the state in Congress. She's the first Korean American woman, period. And she always says, it's okay to be the first of anything, but you should never be the last. And I think that when you look at the long legacy of Asian American heritage here in this country, people like Gary Locke, Norma Mineta, Mike Honda, you know, Judy Chu, these people who have really broken the glass ceiling or bamboo ceiling for us, I would not be here if it weren't for them. And one of my goals is to make sure that, again, I'm not the last. And so I wanna encourage our our community to stay engaged. We had record turnout this year in this election. We had more new voters this year in the election than we had voters last election. And we're the fastest growing demographic in the country. I would just encourage our community to stay engaged and make sure that we have our seat at the table there's a really popular and almost cliche saying in politics. Uh, The saying is decisions are made by those who have a seat at the table. If you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And so I think it's really important that we continue to keep the foot on the pedal and we continue to grow our representation in all levels of government.
1: Thank you so much for your time today, again. Absolutely, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again for joining us on this episode of our Chin Up podcast. Tune in next Tuesday morning for more inspiring stories, advice, and tips from our special guests. As always, keep your chin up.